0: I grew up in a church setting where the understood rule was that doubts were bad. They should be ignored, they should be suppressed, and they should definitely never be talked about. And what I would describe it as, it was kind of like taking that nasty red medicine your mom gave you when you were sick, you know? I was just supposed to take everything that I was taught and believe it, and that was that. Now that worked pretty well for a while, i got to say. That is, until I went off to seminary, and just to make a long story short, I went to what you would describe a very challenging school, where every day I'm hearing lectures that are basically confronting me with everything I had ever learned when I was young, questioning if I could believe what I really believed to be true. And I got to this point in my life where I started feeling really guilty, because I started doubting. Why did I believe? What I believed. Is there any evidence to back this up? But then a turning point came in my life when I came to understand something really important that I hope you understand as well, which is doubting is not wrong. In fact, if you're following on your message notes this morning, that's just something we make available. If you'd like to use those as we walk through this text, you don't have to. But I discovered that doubt is often the first step to real faith. Doubt is actually often the first step to real faith. At least it was in my case. It wasn't until I could bring my doubts fully to God without feeling guilty about them anymore, seeking the answer, where my faith no longer became my parents' faith, my teacher's faith, my youth pastor's faith. It became my own faith. A.W. Tozer once wrote these words, In our constant struggle to believe, we are likely to overlook the simple fact that a bit of healthy disbelief is sometimes as needful as faith to the welfare of our souls. Faith never means gullibility. Now, if you're squirming in your seat right now going, I'm not sure about that, it's probably because you also were raised to believe doubt is bad. Never doubt. But do you believe what he writes there? Sometimes doubt can actually take us to a deeper place in faith If you're visiting with us this morning, let me just catch you up with where we are. We are basically dedicating almost this entire year to walk through the Gospel of John together in a series. You notice there up on the banners we called Encountering Christ. We are walking through this Gospel, looking at the different encounters Jesus had with individuals there. And we're trying to learn what we might be able to discover from those encounters ourselves. And on this Easter Sunday, we're going to skip ahead quite a few chapters. And we're going to look at an encounter Jesus had after his resurrection with somebody who I think unfairly gets labeled as Doubting Thomas. It's like his name now, right? First name, Doubting. Last name, Thomas. That's how we know him. Unfairly, because I think Thomas represents so many of us today, if we're honest, including myself. In the simple fact, if you're falling on your notes, Thomas needed evidence before he'd believe. Thomas needed evidence before he believed. I don't blame him, do you? But because of this, he has forever been labeled as Doubting Thomas. Now, I'd love to be able to stand up here on this Easter Sunday, bring out my superhero cape, put a big cross around my chest and say, here are eight easy steps to never have doubts again. But you know as well as I know, I can't do that because that's not true. The Christian journey is often confronting our doubts. But, here is what is true. Our God is not afraid of them. Our God's not afraid of our questions. In fact, our questions lead us to a more genuine faith. That's what our church believes, at least. In fact, next week, we're starting a class that we offer regularly called Tough Questions. Where we actually address the questions people ask today. They bring against Christianity. Is the Bible reliable? And other questions like that. Why? Because deep down, we believe that by asking these questions, we can come to a point of ourselves of what we believe. Now, what we believe in, that's between you and the Lord, but we can at least bring him the questions and know that he's willing to answer them with us. Now, obviously, this morning, I can't answer every tough question that you might have about Christianity, but what I would like to do is spend some time this morning asking the question Thomas had, the doubt Thomas had, which is, Did Jesus really rise from the dead? And when we get all our nicest clothes on here on Sunday morning, we sing some, I got a new shirt, by the way, just for the day. We sing songs, we're celebrating, we're joyful, but are we just deluding ourselves? Are we kidding ourselves? Are we celebrating some event that took place 2,000 years ago, but this guy is actually still dead? And I guess that leads to a really... In my opinion, more important question, which is, so what if it is true? Should it make any difference in your life? Should it make any difference in my life if Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead? That's where we're going this morning. So if you would, let's take our Bibles and turn them to John chapter 20. If you brought your own Bible, which we encourage you to do every week because we'll be looking at it. It's about four-fifths of the way back if you're just kind of learning where things are in your Bible. You find the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And we're looking at chapter 20 starting in verse 19. Now, if you didn't bring your own Bible, we have some available there in the seat in front of you. There are the red books there. Love it if you grab one of those and turn to page 700 or 800 right around that area. And here's what I'd like to tell you. If you don't own your own Bible, today's the day. We want you to have that as our gift. Take that home with you. We want you to have it. We want you to bring it back because we want to learn from this book together. But hopefully you're ready. Your turn there. We're actually going to start in verse 19 to kind of set the stage a little bit for this encounter with Thomas. So look at it with me. John 20, starting in verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now I want you to look down at verse 24 because this is where our encounter really begins. Now Thomas, called Didymus, that just means Thomas was a twin, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So that's our setting. Thomas isn't there the first time. Now we don't know why Thomas isn't there. He could have been running errands. He could have been picking up the kids from daycare. We're not sure why Thomas isn't with the other 11 on this day. Although, if you read through the Gospel of John, there's a hint that it could potentially be linked to his attitude. You see, Thomas is often known throughout John as kind of more of a pessimistic Or melancholy type of personality. In fact, my friends wonder if I might be related to him some way in the distant past. Although I much prefer the term realistic to pessimistic. All my pessimistic friends know what I'm talking about, right? Thomas first appears in John's Gospel in connection as Justine did in that awesome reading there. When Jesus decides he's going to go to Bethany and raise Lazarus from the dead. They realize that if he goes to Bethany, they're in big trouble. They want to arrest him. They want to kill him. But it's Thomas of all the disciples who speaks up and says, let us also go so that we may die with him. Now, that's not very optimistic, is it? Let's go so we can die. But you got to admit, it's pretty courageous, isn't it? He's the only one who's willing to speak up and say, I am willing to follow him into death. Next time Thomas appears in the Gospel of John, it's in the upper room where Jesus is having his last night with his disciples. And we're going to have the opportunity this fall to really look at that. Some really important chapters in the book of John. But one of the things Jesus says is, I'm going to be leaving you. You don't know where I'm going, but you're going to follow me afterwards. And they all have to be wondering like, huh? But it's Thomas. It's Thomas who speaks up and he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? I love that. You know all the other ones were wanting to ask that question, but they're just too timid to ask. Thomas is unafraid, though. I'm going to express my doubts. I'm going to express my concerns, and he does it. Can you imagine if he hadn't what we would lose in the Bible? Jesus says, I am the way to where you're going. I see a lot of devotion in Thomas. In fact, I think Thomas gets a bad rap, and we're changing that today in the church. Throughout history he's known as doubting Thomas but he's just voicing the opinion of all the disciples. If you're falling on your notes I love Thomas because though skeptical, though skeptical, he also displays great courage. He displays great courage in his life. He loved Jesus. He's willing to lay his life down for Jesus and thus he is heartbroken. Heartbroken when Jesus is put to death. That's why I don't think he's there the first time he appears. Thomas needs a little me time to digest all this. And I think that really helps explain this rest of this passage, especially verses 25 and 26. This is where he gets this label of doubting Thomas. Let's look at it. So the other disciples told him, and actually the word there means they kept on telling him. Can you imagine that? We have seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hand, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. That was the strongest thing Thomas could have said in the original language, and this was written. I refuse. Unless I see it for myself, I refuse to believe it. Now, I want to make a very important distinction here. There's doubt for the sake of doubting. I mean, I've had conversations that go nowhere with that, right? I'm going to doubt no matter what, so let's run in a circle and not have any, uh, any, any uh, clarity on this issue. But there's also doubt because you want to believe. There's doubt because you want to know more. You really want to get to the heart of it and the truth of it. And that's what I see in Thomas here. He's basically saying, unless I see it for myself, because this is way too good to be true. I mean, the implications for this are gigantic if this is true. So I need to see it for myself. Unless I see these... Unless I see that, I will not believe it. It reminds me of, have you ever heard of Eric Wehenmeier? Anybody? He is a blind mountaineer. In other words, he climbs mountains even though he's blind. And he wanted to climb Mount Everest, to be the first blind mountaineer to climb Mount Everest. And he did it. In fact, here is a Time Magazine front cover piece of Eric Wehenmeier. I find the title of that very ironic on Easter Sunday, don't you? Well, Eric Wienmeyer got to the base camp at Everest, and uh, people did not believe that he was actually blind. The guides and so forth, they're like, no way, this is a hoax, he can't possibly do this. So what they would do is they'd go up into his face, and they'd like move his ha- their, their hands really quick, and of course he'd flinch, because he'd feel the air. And they just confirmed, yeah, this guy's, this guy's just trying to fool us here. Until one day, he calls his lead guide into his tent, he looks down, and he pops one of his eyeballs out, and he says, do you need the other one? He's like, no, we're good, thanks. (laughs) From that point on, nobody doubted. Thomas needed an eyeball, didn't he? He needed the proof. And we come to this encounter that he has with Christ. Now I wonder, don't look ahead. Is Jesus going to be mad? Is he going to scold him? In his best Italian accent, is he going to say, you're dead to me? Obviously, I'm not Italian, as you can tell. (laughs) Well, let's look. Let's find out. Verse 26, a week later. Can you imagine that? We just skip over that stuff sometimes, don't we? A week later, we saw the Lord. We've seen the Lord. Shut up. (laughs) His disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now would you read verse 27 out loud on your notes there it says, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now I don't know how you read that. Do You think Jesus has this big old grimace on his face? How dare you doubt? Or do you think when he walked into the room, he's like, Peace be with you, 11, but not you over there? (laughs) Personally, I don't think that at all. I think Jesus approaches Thomas with great love and patience and care. And just like he will for us today, when we bring our weaknesses and our doubts to him, he lovingly offers us the proof we need, the evidence we need to believe. If you're falling on your notes there, with patience. Jesus gives Thomas the proof he needed. I love how that drama ended right there, right? Prove it! And Jesus and his patient did. Listen to me, Jesus doesn't frown on the need for evidence of faith. This is why if you've been with us in our study throughout John, John talks about Jesus giving signs or we commonly know them as miracles while he was here on earth, right? He wanted to validate his message to authenticate who he said he was. And according to John, the resurrection is the eighth and final and greatest sign that he is who he said he was. He has risen from the dead. He is God's son, God in the flesh come to save us. And he proves it To Thomas. And I say, well, that's great for him. Don't you wish you were there? Don't you wish you could have been the one to touch him there? But what about us? I mean, we're standing here 2,000 some years later. Do we have any evidence to believe what Thomas believed? Or if you're on your notes there, what evidence for the resurrection do we have today? Any? And I got to tell you, I think these are great questions. You know, they've been asked for centuries, right? In fact, there have been a number of theories throughout the centuries to disprove the fact of the resurrection. Maybe you've heard some of them. Maybe they're causing you to doubt. I know they did for me. And while I can't address all of them here this morning, I would, in light of the fact that we're studying Thomas, like to address three of the top doubts leveled against the resurrection. Here's what this is not meant to be, though. I, I, I get so nervous about doing this kind of stuff because here's what this is not meant to be. Me trying to prove to you that you should believe this. Like, take the medicine. No. All I want us to see is it's okay to bring our doubts and our questions because we can honestly seek real answers To These things I needed to do that at one point in my life these very questions were questions I was asking So I hope as we walk through that that will be the attitude we have here Do we have any evidence to believe what we believe today? You'll notice there's some space underneath each and every one of these three doubts That's just if you'd like to write anything. I'm saying here. You're not gonna hurt my feelings if you don't don't worry But let's talk about these three doubts the first doubt often leveled against the resurrection is that Jesus was not actually dead on the cross He wasn't actually dead. Have you heard this? This is commonly known as the swoon theory. In other words, Jesus like fainted or he took some sort of a drug or medicine that caused him to pass out. But then when they put his body into the tomb, the cold air kind of revived him. And so he was never actually dead. This is what many Muslims are actually taught. Jesus never died. He just fainted. Well, in order to address that theory, we actually need to go back a little bit and address what crucifixion would have meant. This could be a little bit graphic, but I think we got to understand before the resurrection what actually took place to him. In John 19.1, we're told, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. You know what flogging is? Kind of glad there's not flogging anymore. I don't know about you. But flogging is they would have taken Jesus, tied him up to a post, taken a whip that would have had bones and glass and shards of other things on it, and whipped him 39 times. One observer of Roman flogging, this is a non-Christian source, historical evidence wrote this about flogging. The sufferer's veins were laid bare, and the very muscles and tendons and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. Why tell you this? I tell you that because we need to understand that even before Jesus was crucified, he was already in critical condition. I mean, it's a wonder to me that he could even carry his cross as far as he did. But he did have to carry his cross to the place where they would do these crucifixions. And at the site of the crucifixion, they would take these nails five or seven inches long, pound them into both of his wrists and into his feet. you know that we get the English word Excruciating. From the word crucifixion, literally in Latin it means out of the cross. Why do you think that is? Because it was excruciating. And the way somebody would eventually die by crucifixion is through suffocation. See, you'd be hanging there, but you'd have to get air, so you'd have to push yourself up in order to get a lungful of air there. That would have had to have hurt with the foot. But not only the foot, think about his back at this point so over and over, you're pushing yourself up until you get too tired, where you eventually suffocate. Now, if the Romans needed to hurry up the process, they would just go and break one of the victim's legs, right? If you break their legs, then they can no longer push themselves up. In fact, that's what they did to the two people on Jesus' right and left at the cross there. They broke their legs, but then it says in the Bible, they came to Jesus and they saw that he was already dead. Now, they didn't just guess about this. They wanted to make sure, so they took a spear and they shoved it up into his side, into his heart. And we get this really interesting medical detail John records. It says that a mixture of blood and water flowed out from him. What is that? Why not just blood? Because either the spear punctured his lungs where the fluid was building up, or it punctured the sac around his heart. And so John is trying to faithfully record what he saw happen. Bottom line, friends, nobody comes down from the cross alive. They would have had four Roman soldiers confirm it. And even if he did, I just kind of got to the point in my life where I had to say, "Let's say he did revive in the grave. That would have meant he would have to pulled off like seventy five pounds of spices and linens over his body. He would have to have moved a stone that it took twenty guys to move." You would have to snuck by the Roman guards and found where the disciples were hiding. In my life, at least, it took more faith to believe the swoon theory than it did to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. So that was doubt number one. Doubt number two, I had to face, and maybe you face this as well, is that the disciples got the wrong tomb or his body was stolen. The disciples got the wrong tomb or his body was stolen. Back in 1996, I had the amazing opportunity to go visit Israel. And we got to tour Jerusalem. One thing you'll notice if you've ever gotten to go to visit Israel, is there's archaeologists all over the place digging stuff up, right? And six years before I had gone to Israel, they had discovered the tomb of this high priest by the name of Caiaphas. And they discovered his remains there. Now, interesting, because that's the very same high priest who reigned from 18 to 37 A.D. In fact, it's the very same high priest who accused Jesus of blasphemy and handed him over to Pilate. And in 1990, they discovered his remains. You know whose remains they have not yet discovered, though? Jesus. He's the only religious figure in history of whom that can be said. Now, the question is, why can't they discover his remains? Now, there's really three answers to that, right? Number one, it's because of what we're here for. Number two, it could be because the disciples got the wrong body, or the wrong tomb. So let's talk about that one. On the night he, when he was laid into the tomb, we're told in John 19 that it was Joseph of Arama- Arimathea's tomb. He was a religious leader. And on the morning of the resurrection, do you remember who it is that discovers this tomb empty? Any of you? Who is it that's the first to be there? Some women. Now, what's the big deal about that? Well, that's actually a huge deal because back in those days, a woman wasn't even considered to be a reliable witness. You couldn't put a woman on the witness stand and say their testimony is valid. And so I wonder if they're making this stuff up, why would they choose a woman, a couple of women, to be the first to discover this? They would have certainly have chosen men. But it was some women. And again, that just tells to me they're trying to record this stuff accurately. Second, you know nobody ever denied the fact that the tomb was empty? Not the Romans, not the Jews. In fact, I mean, if I'm either one of those groups, I'm like, hey, wrong tomb. You're about 100 yards off. Or let's just get Jesus' body and disprove this right now. We'll parade him down Main Street so this rumor doesn't take any hold. But they couldn't do that because they didn't have the body and they never claimed that they did now others argue well, that's because the disciples stole it and uh, if you really think about that what would have been the motive for the disciples to have stolen the body would you have stolen a body and then lived a lie in order that you might suffer excruciating deaths for the name of Jesus Christ I wouldn't but that's what happened to them they gave their lives for this friends the unanimous history tells us the tomb was empty on Sunday. There's no motive for the disciples to have stolen it. If it was the wrong tomb, the Romans and the Jews would have just said, whoops, you made a mistake. The only explanation that I could come to is that the tomb was empty because he was risen. And that leads us to the third doubt, and honestly, this is the one I struggled with the longest and the most. It's the one I hear the most today. I bet you most of you have heard this. It's that the disciples made it up well after the fact. The disciples just made this all up well after the fact. Either one of two things. They were delusional and they actually believe this. Like, as a Vikings fan, I actually believe they're going to win the Super Bowl one day. (laughs) I'm delusional, I know. Or, they schemed together years after the fact and decided, let's sell some bestsellers. And they made up these stories that were partially true about this human being named Jesus, but then they embellished these stories to make him say things that he never actually said when he was still on earth. He's still dead. He never claimed to be God. But let's make this seem like it was something bigger than it actually was. Now to believe that, number one, you'd have to discount the biblical evidence, which is that Jesus appeared a dozen times to over 515 different people. You can notice the reference there on your notes there. Not just to the disciples, right? He appeared to over 515 individuals. Well, some have said, well, that was just a hallucination that they had then. It's a mass hallucination. Now, psychologists would say that's an even bigger miracle than the resurrection itself. Because that'd be like me telling you, did you enjoy the dream I had last night? You can't have a mass hallucination together. Well, maybe they just were wishful thinking. Maybe they just hoped that they had seen Jesus. Maybe this was something different, but no. These were real events that happened in real history. And it revolutionized the lives of those who followed Him. And to me, honestly, when I boiled all this stuff down, when I was looking at these doubts for myself, the biggest evidence that came to me was what happened to the disciples. I mean, here were these cowardly men, hiding, afraid at what would happen to them. Peter denies Christ three times. And on Easter, there is this radical change in their lives where they are boldly proclaiming, without fear of death, that He is risen. He is risen indeed. Now, this still stuck me for a while because, honestly, all you have to do is open up the paper every morning and say there are all kinds of people who are willing to die for what they believe, right? Every day. People die for what they believe is true. And so that stumped me for a while until I realized nobody would die for what they knew was false, though. You might die for what you believe is true, but you never die for what you knew was false. And the disciples were in a unique position in history, don't you think? They were going to know whether or not this was true or false. They ate with Him. They spoke with Him. They spent time with Him after He rose from the dead. This was true, and they laid their lives down for Him as a result. Nobody dies for a lie. But people are willing to die for what they believe is true. Do you see the difference between those things? Well, that's what finally brought me back to the road of stop doubting. And believe, and maybe that does nothing for you. Maybe you've already been convinced by this. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you're sitting here and going, well, that sounds logical, but who cares? So what? Should this honestly change anything in my life? Should it change the way that we live? And friends, I think that's a much more important question to ask on Easter, don't you? So what? What? Who cares? And I want to spend the rest of our time this morning as we close talking about two huge so whats. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, so what? Let me give you two. Number one is in verse 28 with G- Thomas' response to Jesus. Let's read that out loud together. Thomas says, said to him, My Lord and my God. Well, that's kind of a 180, huh? I will never believe. My Lord. And my God. Now for a Jewish man to make a statement like that, that's blasphemy worthy of death. He should be put to death right there. He's calling this human being God, but he realizes this isn't just a human being. (laughs) Thomas understood better than probably anybody at this point in history what just happened. If you're falling on your notes, if it was true, if what he was really seeing was Jesus risen from the dead, Jesus just proved himself. Jesus proved Himself as the only God who can save. The only God who can save. In other words, He proved Himself as God and He proved Himself as Savior. Let me just say this a little bit more bluntly in case you'd leave here this morning confused about what I'm saying. I know this isn't PC, but if Jesus really did die from the grave, it proves that biblical Christianity is true and every other world religion is false, including some forms of Christianity. Because He proved... What he had been saying all along. Some of you, any of you old enough to remember Super Bowl 3 Don't be ashamed. Just raise your hand. Super Bowl three. Super Bowl three. even if you don't, weren't alive, you know what Super Bowl three is. That's the Joe Namath Super Bowl. Now you know what I'm talking about? When Joe Namath, the night before the game, is being interviewed and he guarantees that the Jets are going to win the Super Bowl, which nobody thought they could and claims that they're the best team in the world. Now, you got to realize, this was before the Super Bowl was like the Super Bowl. But by him making this ridiculous claim, which that's not so odd for us today, but it was pretty odd for him to do that way back then. He was putting himself on the line, and the ratings for that Super Bowl were tremendously higher than they had ever been before. Why? Because people were interested. If Joe Namath puts a W up on the board, then his claims are true. The Jets are the best team in the world. But if he doesn't, he's a fake. He's a fool. Now, you know Jesus did the same thing for like three years, right? He kept telling everybody, listen, this is who I am. I'm God in the flesh. I'm the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. People are going ballistic over this. Stop saying you're God. Stop. Finally, he just cuts to the chase like Joe Namath does one day, and he says, listen, I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm going to from, raise from the dead. His disciples are like, whoa, do you have to go that far? I'd be probably like, you want a mulligan on that one? Even though I never take them as a golfer. People know what he's claiming here. If he does come back from the dead, what more proof does anybody need? That he is who he said he was. That he is the Savior of the world. Or as Thomas said, he is the Lord and the God. But if he stays dead, we're all fools right now. We're fools for being here. Because he would have been exposed for a liar and a false prophet. So we're told he's put in the tomb on Friday, day one. Saturday comes day two, Sunday comes day three, and Jesus bursts forth from the tomb. And people like Thomas are in shock because they understand the implication here. He is the Lord, He is God. Famous philosopher Wolfhart Pannenberg once wrote these words, and I dare somebody to name their kid Wolfhart. The evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it is a very unusual event, I'd say so. And second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. Well, did it help Thomas change the way he lived? Reliable history tells us that Thomas is the one who took the gospel as far east as India, And one day he's arrested and he's told, unless you deny Christ, you'll be killed. And this one-time guy who said, I refuse to believe, says, I will never renounce my faith in Christ. And they drive a stake through his body and he dies the death of a martyr. Why would he do that? It was the resurrection. It was the resurrection that made all the difference. Friends, I got to tell you, being a disciple of Jesus, which is what we can all be, just like Thomas, doesn't mean you prayed some fire insurance prayer when you were a little kid. It means you follow him wherever he leads you, you obey him, you declare, He is my Lord, He is my God. And I will follow Him the rest of my life like Thomas did, no matter the cost. And that's implication number three on Easter. If you're on your notes, if Jesus really rose, it demands our whole life. It demands our whole life. You hear us say, we're declaring war on shallow Christianity here at our church. It demands our whole life. Not just a toe in the water. I can take you to the very room back at seminary when I had laid out all my doubts, when I had brought them to God, and when I finally came to full belief and I stopped doubting. I got to tell you, I understood at that moment more than I had ever in my life. This is changing everything. This changes everything for me. And I gave him my life to be used however he wanted. Have you done that yet? Have you? Well, the second implication, if the resurrection is true, is found in the rest of the passage. Hopefully you still have that open. Look at verse 29. Then Jesus told them, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then we'll finish in verse 30 and 31. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples. Again, he's proving to them who he is which are not recorded in this book. Now read verse 31 out loud on your notes. It says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. In other words, you want to know why I wrote the Gospel of John? John says, so that you might have life. You might have life by believing in His name. If you're following on your notes, implication number two is if the resurrection is true... We can have life with God for eternity. Starting now into eternity. That's what He wants for you. Do you have it? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, what's the big deal about today? So what? Your faith is futile. We're foolish for being here, we're foolish for celebrating, we're foolish for singing. You are still in your sins. What's the big deal about the resurrection? Why do we celebrate it on Easter every year? Like it's this amazing thing. Because it is this amazing thing. He is risen. He is alive. And because he is, we can be made alive as well. I was meditating on some of these passages this week. And I got to tell you, I found it really interesting. I don't think these are mistakes seems like almost every time, not every time, but most times when Jesus has an encounter after his resurrection, what's the first word out of his mouth? You see it? Peace. That's the Hebrew word shalom. It means well-being. It means a a life in God's presence and pleasure. And it kind of struck me. This is the first time those words could actually be spoken and be true. Jesus declared, as Jeff taught us on Friday, it is finished on the cross. Three days later, he looks at us and says, Shalom. Shalom. Or if you're falling on your notes there, finishing his work, Jesus now offers true peace. Do you understand that he did for you what no religion can do? I've tried it. It doesn't offer peace, does it? Following the rules doing all the right stuff. It offers anxiety. But he did what we couldn't do. Shalom. Shalom. Do you have it? Have you given your life to Christ? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Who's that? That's you and me. We are called blessed by Jesus' very mouth because by believing you may have life in his name. That's not just heaven. Not just one day, yeah, I believe we'll get to heaven and it'll be like a cool party. Gold streets, all that stuff. No. Life in his name, right here, right now. The best possible life you can live because it is a life of shalom. A life of peace. Friends, the good news of Easter is it can be yours. It can be yours. John tells us you just got to stop doubting and believe. Commit yourself like Thomas did personally to Christ as your Lord and your God, trusting that through His death and resurrection, actual historical events that He finished what you can't. And He did it because He loved you, and He wanted to give you shalom. The evidence is there. Aren't you glad we can ask the questions? Aren't you glad we can bring the doubts? Aren't you glad He invites us to come and see for ourselves, to touch His hands. i got to tell you, after all the questions, He's going to ask you a question. Will you trust me? Will you give me your life now? Like Thomas, the question for us this Easter is, will I give Christ my life and receive His peace this Easter?